Well, this morning we're going to carry on our story, our, our series in stories that Jesus told. We're looking at the parables. Uh, this is something we're doing for the month of August. And this morning we're going to give you, I'm going to give you three stories for the price of one. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 and looking at three parables Jesus told about things that have been lost and found. So the title of this morning's message is Lost and Found. If you have a Bible, please do turn to Luke 15. And as you're doing that, let me ask you, have you ever lost something important to you and then after a lot of effort, finally found it again? Maybe it was your favorite teddy bear or your keys or your wallet or you lost your way on a journey. You lost your mum or dad in a shop. You lost your child in a park. I lost my phone this morning. It's like a living illustration uh, and then found it finally. How did you feel when you found that thing that you had lost? I'm guessing relieved, happy, overjoyed, maybe even ready to party. Have you ever considered how God feels when he finds and saves a lost sinner? Do we think he's any less enthusiastic than we are when we find our lost teddy bear or wallet or our child? Or could it be that the delight that we feel in finding lost things is just a tiny hint of the immeasurable delight that God feels when he finds lost sinners and brings them home into his family. That's the question that Jesus' stories in Luke 15 set out to answer. How does God feel about individual sinners being saved? Now, I haven't got any headings for you this morning, we just have these three stories, and I have got some uh, comic-like illustrations, which will come up in a short while, uh, to go along with it on the screen. So let's begin. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. We read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Now, notice these weren't the, these weren't the people who would usually be attracted to Jewish rabbis and teachers. Because of their immoral behavior, these were the outcasts that were coming to Jesus. These were people that knew they could not darken the doorstep of the synagogue or draw near to listen to the teachers of the law. But these people saw something different in Jesus. They couldn't help but be drawn to him. They recognized that, they, that he had come for people just like them. And so they're the ones that are drawing near and crowding around Jesus. Following him wherever he goes, they are eager to get time with him. And we see as well that Jesus is glad to receive them. Verse 2 tells us he eats with them, which in those days was one of the richest signs of welcoming someone into friendship with you. But, verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, the religious leaders are not happy about Jesus and his love for sinners. They are infuriated by the fact that Jesus is spending his time with such bad people. And so verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. And actually, as I said, he tells them three parables, but they all share one theme. So we're going to see the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. They each reveal the joy of finding that which is lost. And together, I think these three stories give us a profound picture of God's heart of love towards sinners and the great delight that God feels in seeing sinners saved. 
So the first of Jesus' stories begins in verse 4. What man of you, he says, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, to have a hundred sheep meant that this shepherd was pretty well off. He was doing well. This was a, this was a, uh, this was a well-off shepherd. And to lose one sheep out of a hundred wouldn't actually be a great financial loss. The shepherd's still got 99 sheep to profit from. And yet, this shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. Well, why does he do that? It's because he cares for each and every one of his sheep. Every one of his sheep matter to him. He is not willing to lose a single one. And so he leaves everything to earnestly search for the lost one. And, and you can picture him maybe uh, peering from every hilltop and combing every valley his eyes peeled, calling out for his lost sheep, and he will not give up until he finds it. Maybe if you're a parent, you've had the experience of losing a child. If you have, you'll know that you'll search with all of your might, wherever it is they've gone, supermarket, park, or off down the street, nothing will distract you and nothing will make you give up until you find them. And this shepherd here is no different. He doesn't stop searching until he finds the lost sheep. And verse 5, when he has found it, notice he, when he's found it, he doesn't berate the sheep for running away. He doesn't demand that this lost, tired, frightened sheep walks all the way home again now by itself. No, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, which is just the most beautiful picture of the shepherd's love for his sheep. Kent Hughes writes, there is immense comfort in the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus' delicate mention that he joyfully puts it on his shoulders pictures tender love. The lost sheep is more than a missing piece of livestock. He spies the lost sheep alive, races to it, picks it up, checks it over, plucks away some thorns, nuzzles it, joyfully hoists it high on his shoulders and strides home. The shepherd, of course, points to our Savior, Jesus Christ. He takes lost, perishing sinners on his powerful shoulders and carries them home. The shepherd rejoices all the long way home. And when he does arrive home, he immediately invites all of his friends and his neighbors to celebrate with him. Verse 6, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. You see, he's so happy that he wants others to share in his happiness. That's how great his happiness is at finding his lost sheep. He wants others to share in his happiness. Verse 7, just so, says Jesus, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay, hold that. On to story number two, verse eight. Jesus continues, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, 
there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, it's quite possible these 10 silver coins were this woman's life savings. All that she's got. In which case, each one of these coins would have been of great value to her. She's not willing to lose a single one of them. And so when she realizes one is lost, she mounts an earnest rescue mission. It may not look quite as impressive and adventurous as the shepherd's rescue mission, but it's just as earnest and just as important, and maybe just as hard as well. Houses back then would usually have been windowless and dark. And so she lights a lamp in order to see. It's like a helicopter search beam. She shines that light into every dark corner of her home. Floors then would usually have been covered in straw, and so she sweeps away all the straws. It's like today, if you were pulling up the carpets, lifting the floor tiles to find this lost coin, that's what she's doing. I wonder if you ever searched for something as diligently as this woman did. Have you ever turned your house upside down? Or kids, maybe, have you ever had to turn your bedroom upside down in order to find something precious that you've lost? Well, when this woman does this and finally finds her lost coin, she is so full of joy that just like the shepherd, she invites all of her friends and her neighbors to come and celebrate with her. Verse 9, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. She throws a party because what was lost has been found. And then Jesus says, as we read, just so, I love that, just so, just the same, in the same way, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now the question is, what does that mean? What does that little statement mean there? It means that heaven throws a party every time a single sinner repents. Every single time a lost person turns back to God and puts their trust in Jesus, every time an individual becomes a Christian, all of heaven rejoices. But there's something more here as well. Did you spot, do you spot who's leading the celebrations in heaven? He says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who is it that stands before the angels of God? It's God himself. Which means God himself is leading the heavenly celebrations every single time a person repents. And so if all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents, shouldn't the Pharisees and the teachers of the law Rejoice with Jesus when a great number of tax collectors and sinners are coming to Jesus in repentance? Well, if they're not taking the hint yet, maybe they're, they're a bit dozy this morning, they're, uh, they're a little bit asleep. If they're not working it out yet, the third story brings Jesus' meaning even closer to home for the Pharisees. Because it deals this time not with a lost animal or a lost coin, but a lost person. A prodigal, rebellious, wayward son. Someone a lot like the kind of people that Jesus is right now sitting down to dinner with in front of the Pharisees. So verse 11, he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, uh, we haven't got time to unpack all of the finer details of this son's rebellion this morning and the mess that it got him into. But suffice it to say, 
Asking his father for his inheritance while his father is still there living and breathing is a shocking request to make. He's essentially saying he wishes his father was already dead. But his father amazingly gives him what he asks. And so verse 12, he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything." Now, in Jewish society, I mean, being a pig herder today, it doesn't seem like the most glamorous job. But in Jewish society, the job of a pig herder was considered so debased that anyone doing it was seen as literally living under a curse. People would have considered the son now not just physically dirty because he's working in the mud, but also spiritually unclean because he's working with pigs. This young man really has become spiritually lost in every way, and it's sort of plastered all over him, his lostness. He's got no home, no friends, no family. All he has is his hunger. And he's so hungry, in fact, that he's tempted to eat pig food. Uh, Now, kids, I wonder, have you ever been hungry enough that you would have been willing to eat rotting pig food? Any hands? I know some of you do get very hungry. But not that hungry, it seems. Okay, that's reassuring. Finally, this young son realizes that life away from his father's house is no life at all. It's about as enjoyable and satisfying as living off rotten pig food. Finally, he is waking up. He is coming to and seeing things as they really are. And so verse 17 says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The prodigal son realizes his lostness and he starts out his journey back home. Now, we can probably see why this parable is often called the parable of the prodigal son. But as we're about to see, it might just as easily be called the parable of the welcoming father. Because as striking as the son's sin and rebellion has been, the father's desire to show mercy and welcome is even more striking. This parable is a powerful illustration of God's fatherly love for wayward sinners. It's a beautiful picture of how God responds to every sinner who comes to him for mercy and forgiveness. So uh, let's look at what happens. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now maybe his father was at work in the fields, or perhaps he was back at home watching from the window. Whatever he was doing, he was watching for the return of his son, waiting and watching his heart longing for his lost child to come home. And then finally, one day, we don't know how long it's been, but one day... The father sees him coming. There on the horizon is his lost son, dirty, 
ragged, broken, but it's his boy. And if we were meant to be a bit shocked by the son asking for an early inheritance back in verse 12, Jesus intends for us to be truly shocked now at how the father responds when that son finally comes home. Verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And there are four beautiful details here in verse 20. Firstly, Jesus tells us how the father feels about his lost son. He is filled with compassion. He loves his son. He has been longing for his son. To see his son now looking so lost and in need grieves him deeply. His heart is full of compassion. He wants to help him from the bottom of his heart. Secondly, he runs to greet him. He doesn't play it cool. He doesn't prepare a stern rebuke. He doesn't think, well, I'm going to welcome him back, but I'm going to make sure he's learned his lesson. No, he sprints down the road to welcome him. And you've probably heard before, in this culture, a man of his standing would have worn thick, heavy robes all the way down to his ankles. He would have been expected to maintain an air of dignity. Old, dignified men don't go running through the street with their sort of robes tied high. So for him to literally hoist his robes up above his knees and run down the road would be unthinkable. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care about humiliating himself. He just wants to reach his son. Thirdly, he throws his arms around him. He welcomes his son like with a long, big bear hug. This son who is covered in filth. I don't expect there were many showers on the way home. This son who is covered in muck, worse still covered in pig filth, making him in the Jewish world not just physically dirty but spiritually unclean. His father doesn't care. He throws his arms around his filthy son. He, he takes onto his own robes the filth and the uncleanness of his child. He's not ashamed to bear his son's disgrace in order to welcome him home. And fourthly and finally, he kisses him, which back then was not just a sign of affection, but it could also be a sign of forgiveness. My son, he's saying, all is forgiven. All is forgotten. And this, Jesus is teaching us, is what our heavenly father is like. This is the homecoming that God promises to every lost sinner who chooses to come home to Jesus. Jesus, as he sits around with tax collectors and sinners, is filled with the Father's compassion for the lost. Jesus was willing to humble himself even unto death in order to rescue us. At the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of our filth, all of our disgrace, all of our uncleanness. And as a result of his death in our place and his resurrection, he delights to tell us that our sins are all forgiven. But there's more. There's more. Verse 21. And the son said to him, so here, here becomes his repentant speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Now what's this father doing? What's he doing? He, he is dressing him as a son once again. What he is doing is he, he is 
in an instant, freely and immediately, bestowing on him not the status of a runaway, a runaway rebel, not the status even of a servant, but the status of a beloved son. This father adopts his returning son. He shows him unconditional acceptance and welcome. There's no probation period here. There's no calling off period. The son doesn't have to earn his way gradually back into the family, show that he's a changed person. He is in an instance welcomed and accepted home. And then, as we're getting used to this running theme throughout these parables, the father throws a party. Bring the fattened calf, he says, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And do we see then this morning, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is what God is like. This is what his heart is like for unrepentant, uh, sorry, for repentant, undeserving sinners. God rejoices when runaway sinners turn and come home. And he invites all of heaven and earth to join him in celebrating every single time they do. But of course, the third parable doesn't end simply with celebration like the other two. There, there is a, there's a sting in its tail for those who refuse to join in this divine celebration. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. He will not join the party. He's angry at his father's compassion and grace. The word angry here carries the idea of this deep, swelling fury within him. Like red-hot lava pushing its way up out of a volcano, he is boiling with fury and ready to explode. And then... When his father graciously comes out, his grace now towards the older son, as he graciously comes out to entreat him to join the celebration, to come join in the joy, the older brother blows his top. Verse 29, he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the question is, what's wrong with the older brother? What's wrong with the Pharisees? Well, not only are they too confident of their own goodness, but they really don't know the father at all. The way they talk, you'd think he was this harsh taskmaster who expects them to slave away day after day and year after year, desperately trying to earn his love. But that is not the father's heart at all. 
God's love is never earned. On the contrary, it is his delight to lavish his love on us through Jesus, giving us precisely what we do not deserve. The heart of God towards sinners is to find us and save us and pour out the riches of his grace on us forever and ever and ever. That is God's heart. Like the father in the story, he says to every Christian, Son, daughter, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. And in God's economy, in in God's mind, in what is important to God, lost Sons or daughters, being found is one of the best things that can ever happen. There is no greater news to celebrate in heaven, but are the Pharisees willing to come inside and join the party? And perhaps more importantly, the question for us this morning is, are we? It's a good idea, in fact, to ask ourselves, where is the older brother still lurking within me? Where's he hiding? Because he's there somewhere. Where's he at work? What situations cause my own self-righteousness to rise up within me? Where am I tempted to be stingy in showing God's grace to other people? When am I most likely to say things like, I can't believe what they've done. How dare they behave like that? I would never do something so terrible. I can't possibly forgive them for that. Do kindness and mercy perhaps start to go out of the window when I come to relate to my closest family members and their sins? Or is it in dealing with misbehaving children or annoying and demanding work colleagues that we find our grace quickly runs dry? And do we share especially Jesus' deep love and concern for the lost? I know my own concern falls far, far short. But what matters most to God should matter most to us. What causes God himself to rejoice in the presence of the angels should stir our hearts to rejoice with him and to play our part gladly in his mission to seek those that are still lost and far from him. Our mercy and our kindness towards others is an excellent indicator. It's a great measure of how well we understand our own need for God's grace And how well we appreciate the greatness of the mercy that he has already lavished upon us. What about those, though, as well, here this morning, who who perhaps are still in the position of being like the lost sheep or the prodigal son? What about if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you're not yet saved? Let me ask, do you see, first of all, how far from God you are? How far your sin has cut you off from him? And secondly, are you ready, like the prodigal son, to turn, to repent, to turn around and run to Jesus to be saved? Because I have good news for you this morning. He is inviting you here and now, through his word, to come home to him. And like the prodigal son, and like all of us, you don't have to take anything with you. You don't have to smarten yourself up, clean up your clothes, prepare some good deeds. You just need to come to your senses, turn to him and ask him to save you and forgive you. Wherever you are, however far or lost you might be, whatever mountaintop or valley you've got yourself into, Jesus left his home to come and find you. He's calling your name from the hilltops. 
And all you have to do is respond and he'll pick you up and like the shepherd with a great smile on his face, he will carry you safely home. And there you will find the fullest of all welcomes. There you'll experience all the fullness of the mercy and kindness of God because that is God's heart towards every sinner who draws near to Jesus, the Savior. And for all of us who've already experienced that wondrous grace, Let's simply ask ourselves this morning, have we remembered that this is what our God is like? This is what he's like. He's not impassive. He's not unfeeling. He's not indifferent to whether we know him or not. He is a God full of mercy towards sinners. He is an earnest seeker of the lost who sent his son on a search and rescue mission from heaven to the grave to find us. He has an unfathomably deep heart of love towards each and every one of us. He sings over every single man, woman, and child whom he saves. And his love towards every single son and daughter never fades or dwindles. It is always full of warmth and delight and welcome. He is always intent in every way on keeping us providing for us, protecting us, and leading us safely home. This is who God is. This is a picture of the heart of God for us this morning. It is who he will be for us forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of your word to us this morning. Lord, we thank you that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That he welcomes rebels, tax collectors, sinners of every stripe, carrying our sin down into the grave itself so that he might carry us on his mighty loving shoulders all the way home to you. Oh Lord, please help us to better know your heart, to love the heart you have towards the lost and needy. And Lord, we pray that we might share your heart, share in your joy, share in your delight at passing on the grace we have received to others who are in as desperate need of it as ourselves. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.